Hello, you're listening to the abridged version of Book Shambles. If you'd like to hear the full-length version of Book Shambles and also get loads of other extra treats and bits and pieces, then why not go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Anyway, here's the abridged version with loads of really interesting things that were cut out. I mean, there's lots of interesting things you're still going to hear, but some of the things you're missing out on. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. Now today, actually, it was until 10 minutes ago, going to be Josie and Robin's book shambles, but it's not. It's just Robin's book shambles again. Uh, we've got a great guest today, a fascinating, but I'm just going to, before we start, a couple of things. Uh, please do support us for our Patreon if you can. It makes a great deal of difference, and it means that we can make more stuff, which is what we want to do. Uh, secondly, I'm off on tour with uh, Brian Cox on the Horizons tour, and we're going around the world, and um, I've decided to set myself a challenge, which is I'm going to try and read a book uh, by someone from or about every single town and city that we go to. When I say about, it can just be set in there, in that city or that town. Um, and uh, it can be non-fiction, it can be fiction, it can be poetry, preferably poetry, that's shorter. Um, generally, I'm going to have to go for a rule of trying for it to be under 300 pages because we've got a lot of different destinations and I just don't think I'll be able to do it otherwise. So I've just started putting together a list of potential books. Go and have a look. I mean, we're going to Dunedin, we're going to Pittsburgh, we're going to Sandy. Diego San Jose uh, we're going to Dublin we're going to Aberdeen uh, we're going to Sydney we're going to Perth all of these places and many more and so so far I've kind of I reckon that the flight between Perth and Darwin never been to Darwin before obviously I'll probably read Tim Winton's Dirt Music again when I'm in, in Darwin because that's a good reason to read that again uh, on the actual flight I've chosen uh, Kenneth Cooper's book Wake in Fright uh, which was turned into a film the, by the well basically it's the film that many people say is why the Australian film industry exists because it's quite a kind of gritty and frequently unpleasant film about the outback and apparently people went oh my god we've got to stop just allowing American directors coming in and saying that we're awful filthy people people uh we better try and take control of our industry I've, i have read that anyway but yeah the, the the novel that that film came from kenneth cooper's wake in fright i'm just working out pittsburgh do i maybe go with the philosophy of andy warhol book from a to b and back again uh or do i go with reading john russo's uh, night of the living dead and uh and a, new york haven't worked out yet I've, i just did pick up a copy of r 11's uh rosemary's baby so Go and have a look. Uh, I think it's at briancoxlive.com or something like that, uh, where we're going. And if you have suggestions, uh, also Peterborough, I'll need a suggestion for that, um, then send them to me uh, or send them to Cosmic Shambles. Any recommendations of those books so I can try and read uh, a book by someone from uh, or about or set in every single town and city that we go to on the next tour. Anyway, that's that. Now we're going to talk to Kai Miller, whose book, uh, which I've just read this afternoon, Things I've Withheld, is uh, a beautiful, fascinating and sometimes disturbing uh, collection of essays and is well worth your time. And uh, here I am with Kai Miller. So we're joined by Kai Miller, whose latest book is Things I Have Withheld, which is from Canongate. And it's... Uh, I mean, I, I found it fascinating and very, very beautifully written. And so much that that idea of the things we have withheld, as you said, you know, in, in the opening, that first quote you have, which is consider all the things we never say and why. So this, to me, as I started reading it, got that sense of 
you know, an act of trepanning, an act of those thoughts that must have been building up the pressure that had been building in your head year after year after year. And then, you know, what was that sensation when you first started to write some of these essays, when you first started to tackle some of these things, which may well have, have, have stayed within you for so long? What was that sensation when you actually started to release them to other people? Oh, my God. I think there were there were, there were so many of them. Fear <laughs> was, a, was a big one. I mean, you would think it would be relief, right? It, it it wasn't. It was. It was always God. I have to be careful with this. I have to be so careful with how. How I say this. I mean, can, can you imagine holding something for so long, risking, risking saying it, and then, it doesn't work. Like it, it, it falls on the wrong ears, or you, you manage to say something that upsets someone in, in another kind of way. So. Uh, I approach so much of it with trepidation, to be honest. Well, that's what, because I, I was thinking as, as a stand-up, you know, there are times when I'll do something, especially if it might be something on, say, like mental health or whatever, something that's from the inside, you know, like that bit where you go, maybe I am still the only one. Maybe when I say this to, you know, a few hundred people in a room, mm. everyone will just shake their head and say, take, take him away. And right, so right. was there also that sensation that, you know, will there be certain points that you believe or hope will connect with many that actually, you know, is that is that was that part of the fear? Yeah, I, I think I think that's part of it, you know. Uh, and probably it's because it's the first time I've written nonfiction like this. Uh, so so as someone, you know, you're, you're used to hiding behind poetry or hiding behind fiction. And there is, and you can say a lot of what you think, but there is some remove. And I, I have written a collection of essays before, but those were very kind of, you know, kind of standard political polemic. And this was, this was to the bone. This was, I have to write about me and I have to implicate my own body and my own life and my own stories. And there's no hiding. And so, yeah, you hope it connects, but suppose, suppose it's just you. Uh, so yeah, no, that was that was part of it for sure. And also, I mean, I'm interested. It, it, different cultures seem to have a different sense of of you know. Sometimes when I'm traveling around, there's countries I'll go to, and I, and there seems to be a real openness. And I know, I know, you lived in Scotland for a while, didn't you? Is, is yes, that, were you, about eight years. We we then about um, yeah. And I certainly know that you know, the, not so much Scotland, but the, the experience of 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 England to me is that I think one of the reasons that people are so angry and quite often so drunk is because to talk about anything of consequence is considered the height of bad manners. Uh, mm -hmm. And so everything is a joke. Everything is a frippery. If it has not got a punchline, you know, the, these moments. Are, and so I'm always fascinated. And I, and I wondered from from your experience of growing up as someone who has traveled as well, if, if you have noticed in the different places that you've been, different amounts of, of, of how much honesty can be acceptable in a public space. Oh, yeah. I mean, that that's there, right? But I also think it's, it's what does honesty look like in different cultures, right? Uh, so, so, for instance, you know, I, I, coming from Jamaica, where I just think that things can be really brash, really in your face. I, I remember, I mean, this is a different kind of experience, but I remember being in a workshop, leading a workshop here, and all the English students said, 
Uh, this, you know, th this work is lovely. The only thing that's slightly problematic is probably this line right here. And I thought that's that's not the only thing that's slightly problematic, but the English students heard very loud and very clear that the whole point was rubbish. I didn't have English ears to hear that. I, I didn't know that what was what was being said so subtly was saying another truth and culturally everyone there was aware of it. Everyone knew what was being said, what was at stake. Um, and so I think we have to, part of it is learning how to, how to hear how different cultures say their truths. Mm -hmm. um, and and, and some, of, some, some cultures say it in very roundabout ways with humor. Um, but, you know, I, I think even in Jamaica if you, or in Trinidad, when you listen to what is behind those punchlines and what's making everyone laugh and cackle is often something very devastating. Uh, but you have to know how to hear it. Mm. Have you have you seen Hannah Gadsby's uh, show Nanette? No, I haven't. She did it. it. It was one of those things. She 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 basically she it was going to be her last stand up show. She she decided she right. was going to give up stand up, and uh, um, of course it ended up being so enormously successful that she couldn't give up stand up now because she became tremendously famous off the back of it. Oh. I gen I'm, I'm certain that was not her intention, but she talked a lot about um, about growing up as a lesbian in Tasmania, about the experiences that she had, and and she had an interesting point where she basically said the reason she was going to have to stop to stand up was because you end at the punchline and not at the truth so she would tell various <laughs> bits of her life that she had turned into a joke wow and at that point in the show she'd say but i didn't tell you the next bit i didn't tell you the bit where he came back and beat me up and i went to hospital i didn't tell you that bit i didn't and and i and i found that you know, I, I think it's it had uh, when I watched audiences coming out from it, the effect and and the different looks on people, but all wow. of them, you know, and and that's what I felt. You know, reading your work, that the ability to go into to someone else's shoes and someone else that that you know, I'm I'm always fascinated in in the in the the possibility of otherness which writing mm -hmm. gives, whether it's poetry, whether it's fiction, whether it's nonfiction. That when I was reading like your final essay. Uh, which initially starts as as the first one does with with letters to James Baldwin, yeah. in which you say James, let me. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but basically different forms of this is how you died, James. This is how, yeah. and each one, a different illustration of how a black man like him might have met his death, and then you go into your own possible deaths taken from yeah. true stories. And I thought that. There was an, it, sorry, I've gone a very long way around from Hannah Gadsby, but but it's, except it has a the the impact for me was the same as leaving Hannah's show, which is I really wow. have to pull back more kind of you know sheaves of the world and look further into this because it felt so incredibly personal and yet so political and historical and so broad as well. Yeah, that was ooh, that's when it was the hardest essay to write, you know. Um, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, but yeah, it, 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 it's, it's all of that. Also, it's, it's, it's a story of 2020, right? It's from, from the beginning to the end. It, it starts with one death that affects, um, black culture in America in a certain way. And it comes right back to the Caribbean. And that's the only way I could process the spate of killing. So in, we're in the midst of this, this new pandemic 
that's that's resonating in the world in its own way in the midst of that uh you have not just our it's there's so much risk happening to life to, to, to human life one because of covid and then these deaths that that make that make it so obvious that black lives have been living in this kind of risky you know another kind of pandemic for, for years and years and then i read that quote from i i read that moment when baldwin says that that i have to leave america because if if i didn't leave I would die. And the only way I could process those deaths happening in America was, James, this is, you are right. This is how you would have died. Here it is. Here is your death. Here is your death again. Here is your death again. And when that came back to the Caribbean, again, it was that moment of, my God, this is how I die. Uh, so it was, yeah, it's, it's a weird combination of things, but a very difficult essay to write. Uh, both for emotional, political, but also for formal reasons. Uh, when it goes back to the Caribbean, it, it, it has to take on a Trinidad, a Trinidadian voice. And I'm very familiar with Trinidad, but I'm not Trinidadian. And, you know, so what does that mean politically to inhabit that kind of, yeah, that register of speech? And, and with James Baldwin, I, I talked to Eddie Glaude recently. I don't know if you read his book, Begin Again, um, which came out. Yeah, I haven't yet, but I know Eddie. I know Eddie. And it just seems to me, you know, remarkable and in many ways very depressing that you can look at James Baldwin debating in, I can't remember whether it was Oxford or Cambridge now, in, in the early 60s. You can see the film of him in Paris in the 1970s. You can see some of his final interviews in the late 1980s or mid-80s in, in the UK. And everything that he talks about still remains as as pertinent now, it seems to me, as it was when he was talking about those things, you know, 50, yeah. 60 years ago. I mean, it's it's both depressing, but a testament to uh, his mind was incredibly sharp and incredibly graceful. But the 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 depth of his of his intellect that was that was an intellect that was so tempered by humanity is always astounding to me. And, and I think when you have when you have someone who is that majestic in his thinking and that human, so deeply, deeply human and empathetic to just the human condition generally i think their work is always going to be relevant year after year after year decade after decade baldwin will always be relevant in in ways i think that's that is just part of his mind and his gift and uh, and when i was reading those those letters that are at the beginning and at the end of the book and something i thought with eddie's book as well with begin again which is it is you both masterfully write about James Baldwin without copying him but also with maintaining the poetry of his prose as well that must be quite an overbearing challenge initially isn't it to to you know to to, to write about someone like James Baldwin who as you said yeah really one, one of the greatest writers I think of the 20th century yeah uh, but I think the best people make us better right <laughs> like I, I think uh and it's also like code switching, which which I I mean the book does it does it all the time, right? I'm in different I'm in different places and I'm speaking to different people, and so my voice switches. 
uh, if I'm in Jamaica, my voice takes on a certain kind of nuance. And if I'm in Trinidad, my voice takes on something else. But I think that also happens with intelligence that if you are consciously speaking to your better, <laughs> you, you have to reach for something. And I, I think that's, that's another reason why it was important to start those, start those essays as letters to James Baldwin, because I, I had to speak to someone whose mind was better than mine and who was more gracious than me. Um, you know, and and then someone who, who I both adored and looked up to, but who I could be vulnerable with. Um, and so, yeah, I guess it's just that, that I always think who who a book is addressed to or who, and, you know, one essay or one letter is addressed to, it changes the voice. It demands something of the voice and and in that way, I wanted James to demand something of me, a sophistication of thought that, you know, I just think, well, I just prefer to watch X Factor right now, but, uh, you know, but he demands something else. He demands a level of, of just all of that, of truth and vulnerability um, and graciousness, but, but being hard as well, just being, confronting something dead in the eye for what it is. Uh, so, yeah. Who, who were the first writers that really made a, a, a connection with you? You mentioned Langston Hughes uh, very early on in, in, in the book. I wondered who were the ones that... As yeah, no, but only because, only because Baldwin was, was talking about Langston Hughes. Um, so I read him. He wasn't, he wasn't a huge impact on me. Um, the people who were huge... Um, often came from the Caribbean, so Earl Lovelace um, was a huge, huge impact on me, still is. Um, Lorna Goodison and, um, yeah, the, the poetry of Lorna Goodison and, and the poetry of, sometimes it goes back and forth in ages. So there's Lorna Goodison and there's Emily Dickinson, both huge, huge um, influences on my poetry. There's Kamal Brathwaite from um, the Barbadian poet, um, who was always a bigger, had a bigger influence on me than, say, Derek Walcott. Um, and there, there are American poets like W.S. Merwin. Um, but one of the big, big writers who is, who's continued to have an impact and probably haunts this book so much more than Baldwin does, um, as, as you would see, is obviously Dion Brand, who I, I've never understood why she, why she hasn't won the Nobel Prize yet. Uh, she's... I mean, outside of uh, Margaret Atwood, she's obviously the most important and just sophisticated Canadian writer um, writing right now. And just, and, and yeah, the, all of those qualities that I ascribe to Baldwin easily exist in, in, in her every utterance right now. The wisdom, the grace, the eloquence, the, the, the absolute sophistication of thought. And just being a master cross person, uh, so 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 yeah, much more much more than Baldwin. It's it's Dan Brand who who is an exerting an influence on every page of that book, and and obviously so often I go back to her. Um, the title comes from her. Um, yeah. So. Do, do you find when writing a collection of essays like this is one of the things that drives you on as well? That that 
delight in knowing that you you want because i found i kept making little pencil marks i need to get that book i need to read that i need to find where that essay is i need to find where this that you know that bit of going that sometimes when you fall in love with whether it's a writer whether it's a band whatever it might be the desire to share it the desire to know that someone will put your book down and then go on another journey just making all of these different connections with different writers and each time they open one of their books then it may go off on another tangent and another tree branch oh i love that uh, I, I I didn't think about that consciously. I I love that idea that that writers, um, yeah, that, that we they all have their different journeys, and yeah, you can you can follow those links and go on the journey that these other writers did. I've never thought of it like that. That's a beautiful thought. That's why um, I'd, I'd love. I would love to one day with the first book that was my first favorite book to then work out. I mean, I'd never do it's ridiculous and pointless, <laughs> but to try and work out how each one led to the next book which then yeah. out of that book grew five other potential books and out of those grew, you know all of those things that yeah. kind of exponential growth of po- and then you end up with that hideous moment of going i'll never be able to read all these books and, you, and all of this potential that you're desperate to grasp at i know yeah 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 it, it's so it's so true I, and i can i can think of it like that the, the world of writing and you, you know you know it's you know it's funny it's that so many of the books that I encountered early and fell in love with it was, um, I mean, we had bookstores in Jamaica. I mean, Jamaica isn't like a back of the world place like that. But there was this one secondhand bookstore, Reader's Bookshop in Ligony Plaza. And I used to go there all the time and just, there were there always someone left this random book. And... And it feels embarrassing to say this now, that that it feels like these are writers you should always know. But when you're 15, 16, you, you just don't know the world of literature. And so it feels to me that being like falling in love with Toni Morrison was complete happenstance. It's just because someone left a Toni Morrison book and I had no idea who this writer was. Um, and you know, and, and yeah, you're right. And and from there it was going on to Gloria, Gloria Neal and Mama Dia. And yeah, you're right, this exponential growth. But so many, so many of my deepest and abiding loves, I think, came from randomly picking up books in that secondhand bookstore in Ligony. And it, it's weird that. how that just shapes a whole literary life. Yeah, I think that I was thinking that James Bolden, it was when I was 15 and I happened to have 50 pence. So I'm looking <laughs> for the bookshop, the books that were 50 pence and I'm a huge movie fan and I found this book. Which, it was The Devil Finds Work, which the first essay is about him seeing a woman in a shop when he loved movies, thinking it was Joan Crawford and then realizing that Joan Crawford wasn't black. So I just read that and I went, oh, brilliant. This is a book about movies and I've got 50 pence. Yeah. And then from there, you know, the, uh, yeah, I, I, I love those possibilities. Um, mm. What about, I, I was going to ask you, when did you feel, because quite often with Josie, we'll talk about the fact that for some people, for many people, there is a need to be given permission, you know, in things like, like the arts, not merely to be who they are, but also, you know, if you are going to be a poet, for some people, there are still people who, she runs an organisation called Arts Emergency, which is to encourage people from very often deprived backgrounds um, to, to give them mentors, to say, you can be these things and you can create uh-huh. these things. Wh- 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 but for you, when, when did you, when was poetry something you thought, yeah, this is, this is how I like to write and this is, this is a, a place that I want, I want to, to be in? Uh, randomly, uh, I, I, again, um, 
at university or my first attempt at university. Um, this was back in Jamaica. And it just happened, I'd always imagined myself as a fiction writer. Um, I was always writing stories. And at that time, the university would offer a creative writing module in poetry one year and then in fiction the next year. And I really wanted to do fiction, but it was the wrong year, so I did poetry. <laughs> Uh, and that was that was how that started. That was that was the only reason that that started. Um, but I think, in terms of you know, just thinking through the, that idea of permission, in, you know, I always think about just how lucky I am just to have been a Jamaican writer at the time that I was kind of developing. Just. Because I think coming from a culture like that, where you are, you know, I, I don't take these sort of things for granted, where I was in the majority. Um, everyone, almost everyone on the island looked like me. There was no idea that there were things that I was limited from because of the color of my skin, or there were things that I was not allowed to do. When I was reading West Indian poetry, it was, it was, it was just fascinating, but every single page you read was an allowance. Everything was, it, so it was, it was, can you be a part of this? And it was excitedly thinking, yes, yes, I think I can. I think I can be a part of this conversation. Um, there was, yeah, there, there was never that idea that you weren't, that you shouldn't even try, that you weren't allowed. It was only, are you good enough and do you want to do this? Um, and that was that was luck. I mean, having moved to, you know, being in being in the UK for so long and being in being in the States, you you realize that those dynamics are so are so very different. And things that I took for granted, just the ease of allowance, the ease of you can do anything you want to do. Um, I, I didn't appreciate that not everyone grows up with that kind of confidence or feeling that they had access to that kind of allowance. That, that culture, the cultural truths of each society shift and change our relationship to words and how, how we approach words. Um, so I, I feel I have to acknowledge what is both luck but privilege. Yeah. Do you, how much you, do you think, so was your, your first writing that was published, was, was that poetry? I can't remember. It was I was I was writing both fiction and poetry at the time, and both of them were coming out. Yeah, I just I just wondered how much in terms of how how much writing poetry that, that its effect on 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 your prose writing because I find quite a few uh, poets who I've then read the novels that you know that there is a, an incredible precision in their writing uh, in, in terms of basically finding the different ways of, of losing the flabbiness that, uh, I, I think, you know, as, as a writer, it's very easy to fall into the, you know, that you basically too many words and right, right. quite a few poets. I mean, the most recent one would be Selena Godden's Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death and, and, uh, which is her first fiction novel. And, and I just read that and I was like, every single word means something. And it felt to me this was that had come from that process of having to always work in that very condensed format. You know, here we are. I have I can. Uh, this is a story I have to tell in so many words before I stand up in front of an audience. Yeah. Yeah. But but it works in the opposite way as well. Right. 
you certainly have that, the, 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 the precision, the economy. I remember sending in my first novel um, and I'd sent in a hundred pages or, or no, the, 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 my publisher at the time said to me, please send in the first hundred pages. And I thought to myself, well, I can send you the first hundred pages, but I may as well send you the last three afterwards because that's the length of the novel. Um, so the economy is there. What's, what I had to train myself, I remember having a breakthrough in August Town, which is the last novel I wrote. And it was teaching myself that the problems of fiction are not the problems of poetry. And I think my poetry muscle had become so overdeveloped that I would, I would approach fiction and, uh, you know, I mean, I, I keep on joking about this. The problems, of, the problems of fiction are character and tension and plot. Those aren't the problems of poetry. And if you take the toolkit of poetry trying to fix a problem in a novel, it's going to be beautiful writing, but it's not gonna fix the problems of fiction. And I think that's the problem that poets who approach fiction end up having that they, they end up fixing all the problems of the novel with the wrong toolkit and so it, it's beautiful to read but there is no tension there is no character development it's always flat and you have to think and sometimes i want to say when i read a book like that like you know i know i know you love language but it's goddamn boring right now <laughs> and, and, and could you just but this one moment, not when you're writing, not when you're adorning, but just when you are looking the novel in the face, just, just for that moment, just, just be a novelist. When you come to a problem in the novel, for that moment, be a novelist. Stop being a poet. Stop shirking your duties at that moment and trying to get away with it just being beautiful. So I, and I, all of this is clear that I'm saying this to myself because I, I've read some of the things I used to write before as a fiction writer and I, I, I realized those moments when I was fixing things as a poet and not as a novelist or not as a story writer and and, and I see why it was so it's so seductive but you're, you're, you're not doing your duty. Who would you say has, has been most effective in being able to, to write both prose novels and also poetry? Is the one, the one poet that you would, or, or any, any poets in particular, that you would say, yeah, they fixed the right problems this time? Oh, wow. Uh, there, uh, uh, sorry, David Malouf. That's who I'm trying to remember. Oh, yeah. Uh, David Malouf is a brilliant poet. But when he write, when he when he gets to the novel, you do not know. You 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 don't. Feel, I mean, there there is there is precision, there is there is beauty, but oh God, does he understand plot and development? And he when he's writing a novel, he's a novelist. I that 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 is someone who I keep on going back to because when you again when I when I switch over to the poems, I'm just amazed. He is a hundred percent a poet and a and a great great poet at that moment. I've not read any of his. I and uh, I know people uh, recommend him highly. So now that's another book I'll put. I'll, I'll place that on the inside of your book as another of your recommendations. Uh, that is necessary. I, I wanted to talk a little bit as well about one of your your essays. You you talk about and and I thought this was such a good way of looking at it, that that race 
is a decision that others make about you uh, mm -hmm. when you write about ethnicity versus right and, and i find that i mean just even from a scientific point of view you know whenever i've sat down with with kind of geneticists and and, and done shows about the ideas of race you know the, the whole idea is a, is a is a fiction and yet it's a oh, fiction yeah. which seems to we don't seem to be able to demolish the fiction despite the fact that all the science is there to show that this is a no. school fiction yeah no we, we we are we are so invested in it which which um let, it, it leaves me conflicted right uh, because like when you know 400 450 years ago we decided to invent race as we're using it now because race was around as uh having to do with nationality or having to do with language or you know having to do with these things it was a concept but it but when we're trying to justify the institution of slavery race takes on a brand new meaning that it hasn't meant before and to this day that's still the meaning that we that we carry and i understand how you know african descended people who got the short end of the stick in this new this new category of the human which as you say is scientifically false and problematic and there is no support of it as a um, as a category uh because they belong to this category that was so oppressed you, you had to give new meaning to it and i realize now there are things that i am invested in i i know that race is a fiction and yet I find myself being invested in the idea of black culture or black humor or, you know, black TV, you know, all these things, but they're, all of them are reifying and taking as natural and inherent this idea of race that I know is false. Uh, and so I find myself conflicted. Like, how do I, how do I navigate these two things, knowing the absolute falseness of race but being invested in these in these things that black people did to survive, um, I, I don't have an easy answer to that. I don't know what to do with that morally or intellectually. But it's a very interesting. I mean, that that idea that you know other people's delusions may well still create your reality. Right. Um, yeah. It's. I yeah, mean, the, 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 this is the thing. We know that we know that race biologically is false, but does it have an impact? Yes, of course. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's not something that we can just wish away at this point. It is the way the world has been organized and it has real, real impact on the lives of people. Um, and sometimes even the deaths of people, as we know. Um, so it's certainly nothing that is ignorable. I mean, you know, the, the, the other extreme of, oh my God, I don't see race, race is nothing. I mean, that we know that is rubbish as well. Uh, but yeah, what, what, what to do? Should it, should black people be invested in um, dismantling that concept? I, I think that that that's more where 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 I have where I have conflict. Um, setting up race as a concept did so much damage to us as humans. It did just incredible damage. And so, should my position be that I am invested in dismantling it? And if I am invested in dismantling it. That means these concepts that I am so invested in, again, black joy, black girl magic, black boy magic, black humor, black culture. That means I can't, 
yeah, what, what, how should I approach these things? Because to say those things as inherent, they reify the idea of race. They, they set it up as inherent and standard. Um, and I understand that, but should I have a different, should I have a more nuanced, um, complicated relationship with these things? I have no answer for that right now. I don't know. It's, it's just something that my mind, my mind keeps on going over. What should, what should my, what should my position be? I, I genuinely don't know. Um, I just got. I wanted to, one more thing. I'm going to get some recommendations off you if that's okay. But I was uh, about what you're reading now. But I also I found it very interesting when you were also talking about. Uh, I, I think you were working in a supermarket or a grocery store, maybe. Mm-hmm. And uh, I can't remember whether it, whether it was some reggae that was 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 playing. Yeah, at the time it was reggae. And uh, and you were saying there was a, a woman who came in and said, you know, this music is awful and offensive. And and she had because I think that was at two thousand and four when there was a, a lot of, of of outcry about about homophobia. Yeah. Uh, and you then say, well, this, but this is what this, this song had nothing to do. It was not a homophobia song, but this whole culture had now become this this one thing. It was a singular yeah. homophobic thing. And and you then say in the book that you know Jamaica is the place that you feel most comfortable being uh, a, a gay man i found that you know very interesting the way that you talked about perhaps english levels of artifice in terms of our coding that that, that we <laughs> that you don't see in 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 jamaica yeah yeah um it i mean it, it, it was something I, I i came to some time ago um and and, and it keeps on uh it keeps on ins- that truth keeps on insisting on itself and and speaking to other gay identifying men from Jamaica who have come to England um there's always a moment in the conversation where this truth comes up and it's difficult for us to admit to it right um but but that's it i, I think the ways you know every, everything is I don't even I don't even know how to put this, but I think part of my gayness comes out of my culture. And that and so therefore its expression is is part of my culture as well. And therefore its full expression cannot happen in the UK. It 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 simply cannot. That's not, you know, in some ways that's that has to do with other subtly racist things happening in the UK, but but either way, it would just be a fact um, that that my my gayness often comes out in reggae music. It comes out in dancehall. That is that is the place where it becomes its most sensual self, where um, there is a language that I know um, that that we speak easily in Jamaica. So those words simply don't exist in the UK. This is it's the same way that um, I think. Back in the day, you had, what was it called? Polari? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was a language that gay men spoke here. And so that was a cultural, it was a cultural expression. Gay men in the UK knew how to speak to each other. An American man coming to the UK simply wouldn't know the language. Um, they would know that language. It's, it's the same thing that happens in Jamaica. There is a language that I know. And so all of my expression happens most naturally in that culture. Um, when I moved to the UK, to, to the UK, there's an idea of this is what gayness looks like. It goes to this club, it goes to this pride, it dresses in this way. And none of those ways are necessarily ways that I'm familiar with, 
And so now I have to code switch and I have to perform a kind of gayness that is understandable to the UK, but it's probably not understandable to my background and my culture. Um, and so there's, you know, people say, oh, you get, to, you get to be your true self. No, I don't. I get to be your idea of what this looks like in its true form. But when I'm in Jamaica, I don't have to do any of that translation. I don't have to do any of that effort. And the relief of just being able to be. Just what a blessing that is to just be with no conflict, you know? That's, I think that's what I was trying to get at. And, and it's a truth. And I guess I always want to say it because at its worst, at its most condescending, someone will say, and it probably happens less now, but it's certainly even five years ago, it would happen a lot. Oh my God, you're from Jamaica. You must be so happy to be here. It must be so much better for you to be here. And again, you know, these are the kinds of, I mean, I'm going to use the big word racism that I want to talk about it um, because it's well-intentioned because it, 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 it genuinely doesn't understand the kinds of assumptions that were behind that. It genuinely, it genuinely means well but there are all kinds of ideas about, you know, British superiority. Um, you have escaped. Um, you are in a better place right now. There are all kinds of these ideas coded into that. And in that moment, again, you talk about things that you that we withhold. There's a moment where I, I don't feel I have the right to say, no, actually, I miss it. I miss where I'm from. I felt comfortable being gay there you don't you, do, you don't have the right to say that to, to say something that is so plain and so true because to say that it shocks so many people and it, 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 it demands a whole other kind of conversation that you have to sit back and accept this condescending assumption that was said to you and the black body can't respond to it uh, so, you know, it's, it's those it's those subtle moments that I always wanted to go back to say, you know, even in this moment that you didn't intend any harm, the black body is still forced to withhold, it's still forced to be quiet and to accommodate your assumption. You know, mm, why do we is, always have to do that? To, to accommodate your assumption is, a, you know, again, there's so much, so many just lines that I've, I've underlined in this uh, in this book because they're ones that I know I need to keep going back and reminding myself and working out when, when that becomes what I'm doing. You know, all of those, that, that, again, I, one of the reasons that I mentioned uh, the, the, the show Nanette by Hannah Gadsby or another book I would have mentioned is uh, Men Who Hate Women uh, by Laura Bates, which, uh, again, is a right. tremendously generous uh, book as, as, as well, and I would highly recommend recommend that um the book a prize of the day that we're we're uh, uh doing this the book a prize uh long list i think is out today as far as i remember you don't have to mention anything on that but i just wondered in in the last few months what have been your favorite books that you've read oh my god i've been I, i've been i've been going back do, do you know these uh so so in in light of the death of bell hooks i felt this oh my god i haven't read enough bell hooks and so I did the uh, I, I did the weird thing of you know ordering about probably eight of her books and I have just been going through um before that it was oh god what what's what's his what's his name that beautiful um 
black music music critic who died at the beginning of this year, uh, Flyboy. Here with the, the um, anyway, I have been <laughs> I have been mourning the dead, and and all this kind of great intellect that has passed. Um, I've been I've been going I, I've been going back to those to to, to fill in gaps. You know, as you said, there there are always going to be gaps, right? We, there's always these things that we missed, and and sadly, when there are these wonderful, beautiful obituaries, and people telling why this person was so important and so essential, you go, God, I can't believe I missed that. I can't believe I wasn't able to celebrate that while they were here. Uh, and so so I'm in this moment of not reading what is contemporary. <laughs> of going back to these things that I just just missed, and I'm trying to I'm trying to catch up these days. Yes, infuriating as you think, but I would have sent them a letter, and I would have tried to make contact. And there's a conversation that I wanted. You know that that that's what I you know think with so many writers. Yeah. And I suppose we're we're having the the conversation because all of the, you know their work still exists and all. But it is that bit of going, oh, the questions I've got in my mind if they were still, yeah. and you know. Um, Kai, thank you so much. Uh, Things I Have Withheld is out now. It's uh, it's from Canongate. I would uh, very, very highly uh, recommend it. And uh, also, hopefully next week, Josie Long will be back with us. Trent Burton is our producer. Thank you very much to him. And uh, also, please do support us via Patreon if you can. That would be great. Thank you. Cheers, Kai. Cheers. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for listening. Kai's book is out now. Go grab yourself a copy of that. Go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to subscribe and support the podcast and get lots of extra goodies, including uh, you can catch up on a live stream we did this Sunday night, just gone to mark uh, the two-year anniversary of when we did the, or when we started the Stay at Home Festival. Myself, being producer Trent, and Robin and Joanna Neary uh, chatted about and showed off some of the oddities in our collections that we've recently uncovered or recently discovered that's uh, up on demand at the moment on patreon.com slash bookshamble so you can sign up and watch that or if you didn't join us live and you already are a patreon supporter you can catch up on that there none less than carols for curious people in the spring is coming up in april grab tickets for that check out everything else on cosmic shambles back next week with another new episode until then take care stay safe and bye for now Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions.